This is the Tribune Audio Network. This episode of Eat It Virginia is brought to you by your locally owned and operated McDonald's restaurants. The McRib is back October 14th. Do you remember the first wine you fell in love with? Well, it was, uh, it was a Burgundy. Uh, a Nuit Saint-Georges uh, from uh, 1982. Earth, terroir with the fruit, the dark cassis current flavors and everything about it. It was about a six-year-old bottle of Burgundy, which was still quite young, but it was, it was pretty special. It's Monday, May 6th, and we are on a grape adventure. Oh, is that too cheesy? <laughs> is what it is. We'll talk about the Elvies, we'll discuss grapes with Michael Shapps, and then maybe about a staycation. Welcome to Eat It, Virginia. Hello and welcome to Eat of Virginia. My name is Scott Wise and I'm here as always with my co-host Roby Martin. Before we get into it, Roby, a little note for the listeners today. I'm sad. The format's changing a little bit just for today since we have a Michael Shapps wine guru as our guest. Booth will not be joining us this episode. I miss you, Booth. Too much wine for one day. We have to walk out it's of never, here. There's never we're, too we're much wine for home. one day. It's to never home. too much wine. Booth will be back, guys. Never fear. He'll be back on the next podcast because there really isn't a podcast without our podcast sommelier. He is the man. We had quite an experience since our last podcast, Roby. Did you have an experience? Tell me about your first inaugural Elby's experience. You and I were together at the Elby's at Hardywood West Creek mm-hmm. and uh, I had a really good time. You and I were able to Announced two winners together. Best, yep. uh, what was it, Rising Chef? Yes. Be- and Best New Restaurant. Yes. The Alewife won Best New Restaurant. The Alewife. Were that's you- how they, that, that's what they call it now. The Alewife. The Alewife. <laughs> God, I, thought, I actually really, really enjoyed this um, LB's this year. I thought it, that it went smoothly. I feel like it was a nice, not too long program. I think Hardywood looked stunning. Also, uh, can we talk about how pretty the Richmond Dine community is? Everybody was glammed up big time. They're so sexy looking, our dining community. If you haven't seen the photos on Richmond Magazine's Instagram and their social media, go seek them out because everyone looked really good that night. I mean, everybody looks really good regularly, but we all like amped it up for Sunday night over at Hardywood. And how about the host, Todd Waldo? I had not met Todd before. He's bouncy. Phenomenal. Yes. What a great host. Yes. Not only did he host the show, but he was like doing the lighting beforehand. You and I got there several hours before the show started and he was... He was all Logisticking over all over the place. Yeah. I mean, lots of it. If you have a show you need hosted, Todd B. Waldo. Todd B. Waldo's the guy to bounce around on stage. I loved it. He has lots of energy, and I think that he really added a ton of it to the LBs this year. Also, I mean, you got to talk real quick about Susan and Eileen, who put that whole thing on. I mean, that's months and months and easy. months in the making. Cannot be easy. Were you happy with the winners? You know, I was going to ask you that question a little bit, because... <laughs> Because, you know, I'm happy when everybody, when anybody's a winner. It's great to see folks go up on stage and be celebrated in front of their community. I feel bad for the people who didn't win. I've been on, you know, in the TV world, I've been on both sides of that. I've gone to these award ceremonies and, and, and won an award, which is an amazing feeling. And I've also sat all night and listened to other people win. And, and when your category, category comes up and they don't announce your name, it's, it's a total bummer. Is it not an honor to be a nominee? Um, well, you know, yeah, I think you have to say it is. But when you're sitting there, when you've paid for a, a rented tux and you've bought your ticket to the event and you have a date you're trying to impress and they announce some other dude's name, it kind of sucks. <laughs> it kind of sucks. Well, I want to say congratulations to all the nominees. And then up next, who do we have today? Michael Shapps, King of Virginia Wine. 
so we are actually Drink It, Virginia, today. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I am with Taylor Dameron and Michael Shapps. Michael Shapps of Wineworks in Charlottesville and Taylor of Upper Shirley, which is like a little bit outside of Richmond. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, good afternoon. Good <laughs> afternoon. It's a nice rainy day today, so this will be a fun day to talk about wine. I like to start with how did you guys get here, where we are now. Maybe give me a little history, Michael. Oh, okay. Well, I've been in Virginia uh, now. This is my 25th season, or campaign, as we say. And, um, yeah, I, I arrived and started as winemaker at Jefferson Vineyard to replace Gabrielli in 95 and made the wines there until 2000 when I broke out on my own and started consulting for other wineries. People were calling me and asking for help. They really liked the wines I was making at Jefferson, and they wanted some help with their wines, so I went out and started consulting and started my own brand with uh, the King family. Originally, before there was a King family winery, we made wine from their grapes under my label, and then they built the winery, and I made their wines and my wines from 2000, well, their first brand, uh, yeah, it was 2002, their first bottling, to 2007 when I uh, took my brand and went to the current location, Wineworks, over just south of Charlottesville. And during that time, been consulting with a lot of wineries, a lot of startups, been involved with well over two dozen wineries uh, in terms of consulting and startups, and then at the same time went back to France to start a winery in Burgundy where I trained to learn and learn winemaking in the uh, Lycée Viticole de Bonne in uh, the early 90s and worked in Burgundy for a couple of years. So I've been back and forth pretty much since 2004 now on a regular basis. So I just want to get it out in the open. There are 68 wines that go that got to the Governor's no, Cup. Gold medal wines. Gold medals wine, right? Okay, how many of those were yours? I forgot. 22. 22. 22. 22. So a third this year are Michael Schaap's consulting. Yeah. 10 under my label, under my brand and 12 under our clients' wines. So I feel like you're Virginia wine royalty. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I think so. Taylor, how did you get here? Uh, well, I got here um, in... I, I was commuting back and forth to New York, and I kind of got sick of that and decided that I was going to get in the wine business. And so in 2013, I quit my job and started planting grapes, and I uh, was offered a lease on 30 acres of uh, vineyard up in uh, near Gordonsville. And it was too big for me. I was just getting started. So I called Michael. I cold called him. And he said, well, I know that vineyard. Why do I need you? And I said, well, before you cut me out of my own deal, let's talk. Um, I want you to be my winemaker. And, you know, contract winemaking was, uh, you know, still in its infancy. And um, he said, well, that's great, but I'm at full capacity. And I said, well, we just spent 20 years in finance. I'll help figure this out. So we put together an investor group. Uh, there were a number of us, uh, Pippin Hills in there and a couple others. And we bought out Michael's partner and we expanded Virginia Wine Works. And... So there are a couple of us that have partnered up with Michael that, you know, to make sure he makes our wine uh, in perpetuity. Um, and you mentioned the gold medals. I, I think as important as, you know, the governor's case, the top 12 wines in Virginia, five of those uh, were made by Michael. And so, you know, his, his footprint on Virginia wine is, uh, is, is big, and, and we hope it stays that way. Can we circle back to what contract winemaking means? For the people that might not know, you know, I know what a bottle of wine looks like, but what is contract winemaking? Well, it's the Virginia version of custom crush. Legally, we have to call it contract winemaking, though. It's custom crush, which is done all over the world. 
and really is a great way for growers to turn their grapes into wine without having to build a winery. So the most important thing I always said is growing the grapes and being able to sell it. And so that allows them to focus on grape growing. Uh, and then once it's in the bottle, marketing their, their product. Uh, so it's, this is something that exists everywhere. We, we have it in, in France, and it's very big in California. Some of your top cult wines are really custom crush wines. And so uh, I started doing that in 07 when I moved to the facility uh, where Wineworks is, and nobody else had been doing that yet. So I started that uh, business model. And ever since then, it's just been growing to the point now where, you know, we have 17 wineries that we do contract winemaking for. What was your entree into the wine world? I started, before I went to France to study, I actually started as a sommelier in Boston at a really high-profile uh, restaurant back in the late 80s that was way ahead of its time. We had several Cruvenet systems with about 20-plus wines by the glass. It was the wine spot in Boston in the 80s, and um, I was originally a manager there, and then they needed someone to take over the wine program, and they said, here, it's yours, learn wine quickly. And so I just started studying and tasting wine every day with, with sales reps and studying and tasting and buying, and um, really enjoyed it, and really enjoyed Burgundy most of all. So uh, kind of got burnt out in the restaurant scene, and decided I was gonna go learn winemaking, and did some research, and Heard about the school, the Lycée Viticole de Bonne, which is a French winemaking school. And uh, I knocked on the door. And uh, the director, Pierre Jarlot, who is now well, very well-known winemaker in Volnay, uh, kind of looked at me and shook his head and said, your French isn't good enough. And his assistant was also, she was shaking her head too and saying, no way. <laughs> so I begged them and said, give me a ch chance. The school didn't start for another six weeks or so. And they eventually relented and made a deal. They said, all right, you can enroll and take the class. It's all in French. And as long as you pass the classes, you can stay. And, but we're not really convinced that you can do that, so we're not even going to bother to charge you tuition. So instead, we'll ask you to teach conversational English to the other students twice a week after school. So that's all I needed, a little crack in the door. And so you made a trade <laughs> with, on your English to learn how to make wine in France. Exactly, and basically they didn't really do any research into my grammar or my <laughs> literacy. <laughs> so there's a lot of guys over there speaking really poor English. <laughs> That's amazing, right? Yeah. Well, even still, and then at the same time, they, they lined me up with an internship at a winery uh, in Puligny Marchais. Uh, where I was able to, to work, and that's where I met my eventual partner in France. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was able to work six weeks before the school started after harvest. So I was able to learn French, learn winemaking, and it wasn't easy, but I was able to survive and I received my diploma from the Ministry of Agriculture. So what are some of the, I don't want to say tips, but what are some of the things that you learned at the school that you were able to bring back to the States? Well, the school was really more just enology, chemistry, biology, viticulture, learning all the foundation and everything. Um, and it's, you know, traditional uh, approaches. And it's more of the philosophy in Burgundy that I carry with me that I, you know, both there and here now uh, in terms of the, the approach to winemaking, the traditional aspects and, you know, respecting the... The, the fruit, the soil, the climate, and how to make wine from what you're given, and very you know minimalist approach. So, okay, so Taylo, let's see. You grow grapes on your property. Yep. We have 22 acres under vine, yeah. 
So do you just pick them all off, put them in a truck, and then back them up to... I mean, how does that, that work? That, that's exactly what we do. We, Use precisely. We, I got we, it right we, there. We yeah. rent awesome. it. I we, thought uh, it was that simple. We, for, for the month, uh, five weeks of harvest, say we rent a refrigerated tractor trailer. And we, uh, you know, back and forth with Michael all day about, you know, picking is a very big decision, which he's uh, very much involved in. And when we pick them, we run them up to the, uh, the crush pad, offload them, reload with fresh bins, and come back and... and Get home around three in the morning and do it all the next day, and we do that until we've uh, we've got them all in. So, how do you schedule this if you have so many wineries that you're working with? How do you schedule when Taylor brings his <laughs> tractor trailer, twenty two acres of grapes, and let's say the barn at Hamilton Station brings their twenty? It's very complicated. It's uh, really the most difficult part of our business model. We have a much higher labor cost staffing because of this model with all the different we have actually 250 different lots of wine being fermented during the season so we have a great software we have a lot of management uh tools but it is very complicated very stressful but we've been doing it long enough now where we have systems in place i rely also i have a very strong vineyard management team so they're out in the fields besides me you know i'm out tasting testing as well but we really emphasize the vineyard aspect of it all you know, we have a full-time vineyard team that's going around and checking everything. So we can know within days, okay, this is going to be ready from, from sampling and testing and start projecting. And we have a big wow, dry erase board in, in the office that basically has everything planned out, what, where the wine, when the wine's coming in, what tank, and all that. And so it's, it's the war room, as you might s- expect. There yeah. are a couple criminal judges that have sentenced people to be Michael's production manager. <laughs> So we basically, between the last week of August and, say, the middle of October, we process almost 600 tons of fruit. And, yeah, I mean, you can do the math. It's a lot, of, a lot and it's from all different sources. So. We talked about Boston and we talked about France, but we have not directly t- connected you back to Virginia. So what brought you to the Commonwealth? The wine. The wine brought me. Jefferson Vineyards. I was actually, uh, when I was in Burgundy uh, in the early 90s, there was an article in the Wine Spectator about Virginia. And I remember reading it specifically it, in the office at Chartrand and Trebuchet where I was working about Virginia as this up-and-coming region. And I saw a lot of similarities in the climate, uh, you know, grape growing, some of the things that really... I liked about Burgundy. You saw it in Virginia, though this, there are a lot of differences, trust me. But um, I was curious about it. And when I came back from the States, I mean, came back to the States from France, um, I had interviewed for jobs all along the West Coast, winemaking from Washington down to Santa Barbara. And I'm not a West Coast guy. I grew up in, in the East Coast and um, wasn't thrilled with, uh, with that and being... Um, an assistant in a big operation wasn't really what I wanted. I almost went back to France because I had a, an offer to come back and stay as an assistant at the winery I was working at. Uh, but I, I stayed, stuck around and kept looking and did a temporary job in, in New England winemaking job before the opportunity at Jefferson opened up. So 
I was just being patient, waiting for the right opportunity. And that was in 1995? Yep. So what has changed in Virginia wine, being that you've been immersed, almost like physically immersed in it in 23 years? 23, is it 2004? Well, this will be in terms of vintages, yeah. It's been 24 years, but this will be the 25th vintage. Uh, it's, uh, it's changed a lot. When I started at Jefferson, there were 43 wineries, and now we're around 300. So I've seen it. It's gone through phases. Uh, you know, there's the old school in the 80s, 90s people. Then they're still they're still around. Some of them are still, you know, and still making wine as if they <laughs> they're in the 80s and 90s. I mean, some of it's good wine too, very good wine. But they're they haven't evolved as much as some of the newcomers lately in terms of techniques and and also uh, capital to to get them to where they need to be. But it really the first wave I saw was in the late 90s with a lot of the dot com stuff that started happening and uh until the, until 9-11 there was a phase there, there was a lot of investment and growth and then it kind of slowed down and then kicked back up again in you know 2000 late three four five um and as each step of the way i've seen more professional trained freshly trained winemakers grape growers come to the state which has been great and winery owners who are serious about the business aspect of it as well as you know the viticulture and winemaking, more quality, not the mom and pop hobbyists, you know, retired doctors, retired lawyers. That's what started the industry. They've kind of fizzled out. So there's still more of those, but even those that get into the, get into it now, you know, it's changed. And they see if they want to compete, they got to step up their game. So I've seen it increase in terms of the quality of talent that we're getting here now, well, across the board from workers to owners. You mentioned that you have your hands in many different wineries and many and a lot of award-winning bottles of wine. Is there a, a common thread that that you can taste in a Michael Schaap's wine, or is everything mm, just the, hopefully just the quality? But everyone they're from different vineyard sites, and everyone's growing grapes differently, different varieties in different parts of the state, and so um, they should they all taste different. And it really is. Uh, we try to work with all our clients in their vineyards to try to assure quality because we don't want them showing up at our doorstep with grapes that we refuse, which we have. We've actually sent them back with their grapes. I was about to ask you that. Like, when there is a quality issue, whether it be with the truck that backs up or the, I don't know, the fermented almost final process, do you just say, sorry, dude, not happening today? Well, we try to eliminate that. So, yeah, in the early on, we had people showing up with grapes that we would say, we can't do anything with this. So we encourage them to make sure we're involved in their vineyards throughout the season so we know what's happening. You know, there's some things that are out of everyone's control with rain and Mother Nature. But in, then, in that case, if they do show up with grapes that are a little suspect, we'll, you know, meet with them and say, hey, here are the options. We can try to make a wine out of this that's going to be, you know, good enough. Uh, or if you don't want to spend the money, you might want to just cut your losses now. But usually we can work something out where you know, we can blend something into it or we can work on it and and just tell them it's going to might cost a little bit extra to get it to where it needs to be. Do you remember the first wine you fell in love with? Well, it was, uh, it was a Burgundy. Uh, a Nuit Saint-Georges uh, from uh, 1982 that I had in, when I was managing the restaurant in Boston. Yeah. Well, what was it about that one? <laughs> it was the essence of what Burgundy's all about. The, the, you know, that uh, the, the combination of incredible... Earth terroir with the fruit, the dark cassis current flavors, and everything about it. It was about a six-year-old bottle of Burgundy, which was still quite young, but it was it's pretty special. So Taylor, let's. I know that you. We know each other outside of this. Um, this is actually the first time. Well, the second time I've met Michael. Um, 
I know that you like to have your hands in what you do. So how much autonomy a pain in the, you know what? <laughs> do you give Michael? Uh, well, so, you know, Michael gives me enough rope to hang myself with. Uh, and, uh, last, uh, or I guess two vintages of uh, Chardonnay ago, I, I got f- – so Michael's a classic Burgundy winemaker, right? They grow two grapes in Burgundy, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And his, his, the Chardonnay is classic white Burgundy, you know, barrel fermented, new French oak, goes through malolactic. I wanted to tone the oak back. And he said, man, you were making a mistake. And I, I got fearful that our customer, you know, just south of Richmond, would not be comfortable with that wine. It would not be approachable. And so he agreed, and um, it was not the right thing to do for the wine. And I learned my lesson, and so he let me uh, he, he let me hurt myself. Uh, and now I uh, and now I don't argue with him, but so much. Um, I say that we we you know we have to work. The, the customer that we have south of Richmond is not the Charlottesville customer. Um, in in the three years we've been open, we've seen a, a constant. Uh, increase in people that know Virginia wine, they know Michael, uh, and a much more educated consumer walk in the door. But the first couple years, um, it was all about, you know, finding our customer, and I was very concerned about approachability, and, and I think I think we're over the hump, and so now I uh, I let him do do his thing, pretty much. I mean, it's, it, he's a, the hallmark is nuance, and he, he's a nuanced winemaker, and I think that's part of his success, and the last thing I want to do is, uh, Use my uh, ignorant opinions to muscle that out. Well, it's about. T- I mean, he t- we taste all the time. We're always tasting things together and finding what he you know wants to express and the style. And and every year we revise things a little bit and tweak it just to kind of meet because he's only again three years into it, so he's still learning what's the style that he really wants for his uh, his brand. And every wine's different too. So there's some wines that really need to be accessible, young, fresh. Other wines that need that he wants to hold back and age, and so they're all different. Every every variety is a different style. So Virginia, the state, does it provide some hurdles for you with respect to making wine? I mean, well, I feel like you have some things to say on yeah, this. Yeah, well, I mean, there, yeah, there, <laughs> there's some big hurdles. And we, and we talked about contract winemaking. I mean, the, the, the first thing is, you know, you have to know that, that that's been the law in California for over 100 years. Um, that is the way wine works around the globe. And, you know, here in Virginia, it's been a, a, a new thing. So, so, I mean, one of the things, you know, they, they've, uh, the Governor's Cup is, is, is really, you know, the, a shining example um, that there are rules in the Governor's Cup that prohibit contract winemaking clients um, from receiving either the Governor's Cup, the top award, or the top 12 awards being in the Governor's case. Um, for example, when I submit my wine, it has to go under Michael Shapps, Upper Shirley Vineyards, Zachariah. That's the wine we had in the governor's case this year. Well, if you go to Michael Shapps Wine Works, you cannot buy Upper Shirley Zachariah. You can buy that uh, at, at, at my winery. And um, these are, you know, prohibitive steps. And, and, and it really moves counter to the goal of the industry, which is to increase uh, the quality of Virginia wine. And, and, you know, what the motivation is, uh, I suspect it's a lot of folks that are vertically integrated that, that want to shield their wines from some competition, and I think it's very short-sighted. And um, this year I joined the Virginia Wine Board. Um, uh, I requested, you know, I spent an hour with the governor talking to him and told him what my uh, my axe was, and he said, well, here, let's, uh, let's, let's work on that. And 
Um, I've already uh, planted the seed and had a couple meetings, and we're, we're working on getting rules that are punitive to contract winemaking change. And what what would those rules look like? Like, tell me, like, what, like, name what you would like to see. So Just there is a, your own label well, the, I don't want to get too inside baseball, but, but the, there's a rule that says that primary fermentation has to take place at the winery license holder's premises. Now, there is not a customer, a wine steward, sommelier, there is nobody on the planet Earth that looked at a wine list and said, excuse me, you know, did that? Where did primary fermentation take place, and was it on the site of the license holder? I mean, it's just should I be asking that in a restaurant yeah, now? Ab- I mean, I totally think. I mean, like, is that a, my goal? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Could you tell me where the first fermentation occurred? Absolutely. You know, it really is the backbone of quality. Um, kidding, okay? Um, and, and and you know, here we are, a, a state that has thirty five hundred acres under vine. There are probably single vineyards in California larger than that. But somehow we wrote these rules that you know, because we got it figured out. The whole rest of the planet Earth makes wine a certain way. It's how the industry is organized, but but here in Virginia we're going to go contrary to that because we're smarter than them. Um, it's 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 just a legacy thing, you know. I mean, the first when, whenever you get two people across all time, across all culture, uh, sitting at a table, when 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 the first thing they do is try to keep out you know new competition. When when Boeing sat down with McDonnell Douglas, it was to keep Airbus out, and and, and I understand this reaction, but there's no reason that that we should in 2019 tolerate that. We are really making some world-class wines in this state, and we need to think about beyond our borders and, and getting that message out uh, and not, you know, kind of fighting uh, uh, amongst ourselves around where primary fermentation took place. What do you wish some of your consumers knew about your wine? Like, what are some of the things that you were like, okay, I'm going to explain this yet again, but I kind of wish you already knew it. Well, I just think that... Um, you know, we, we we celebrate an expression of terroir with, with these these standalone varietals, you know, whether it's Merlot or Viognier or, or Petit Verdot. But the best wines and, 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 and the Bordeaux varieties that we make um, are, are red blends. And it's really where I think um, a talented winemaker, Michael being one of the, the, the handful in this state, um, can really show off. You know, they can take uh, different barrels and figure out where the weak spots are, where the holes are, and, and they can, you know, one and one makes three. They can really make a red blend in this state that uh, can compete anywhere on the globe. And if you look at the governor's case over the last few years and the number of red blends that have been in there, uh, it is the most competitive sector of the 511 wines that were submitted. I, I think uh, two, 250 of them, almost, almost half, were, were red blends. Um, and so that, that makes Michael's accomplishment even even uh, even more dear. Um, big question for the group here. What wines should we be drinking from Virginia? Mm, Michael. Yeah, it should be. <laughs> the up-and-coming varieties, obviously, Petit Men saying which won the Governor's Cup, uh, which we've been doing for a while, the dry style, is really starting to take off. And that's something unique to Virginia. That is something that really outside of uh, the Gironson in, in southwestern France that's not being grown or produced anywhere else. So that's very unique, and I would recommend everyone try some dry petite men saying. Uh, on the red wine works? Or are there uh, no, they're, well, the Horton wine just won the Governor's Cup, so there's there's a good one besides wine works. But the Michael Shapps one has been... Uh, we've gotten a lot of national attention with ours, and I think that's... I was kind of the first one to start doing a dry style because it's traditionally more of an off-dry, sweeter wine. 
and it was written up in many publications and uh, received a lot of, you know, notoriety when Jose Andres was a big supporter early on. Uh, and so and it was, yeah, it really took off, and then a lot of people have jumped in since. I know maybe a half dozen other producers are starting to do dry style Petit Men saying. So it's great. It's great for Virginia that we're getting known for something. On the red side, Petit Verdot also uh, has really taken off lately in the past, you know, 10 years. Uh, you know, it used to be the Cabernets Franc and Sauvignon and Merlot, and now Petit Verdot and Tanat are really the two varieties that we focus on and think are really the best wines for Virginia. Yeah, let me, I, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, let me throw a log on the uh, Tanat fire. Um, my license plate says to not. So all your listeners out there, oh, if I you steal know your... know how I feel about it. Yeah, I right? I specifically out to Upper Shirley because I'm on a to not trip. <laughs> yeah, right. What, what's, what's to not like, um, uh, as the pun goes. But the, to not is as big and full-bodied and dark, inky, muscular, whatever, you know, tough adjective you want to throw at it uh, as a wine as you can make in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And... Um, if you grew up in the state like I did, there was a, a period where Virginia wines were not known for having color and structure. Uh, we couldn't ripen reds. And, and that argument is over. It's dead. You know, let's argue about something else. If you pour somebody a glass of Tanat, um, all their biases go away and, and we can move on to, uh, to the real conversation. It's a tough grape to grow in, in terms of its cold sensitivity. I mean, I, we've had a, a fair amount of mortality uh, at Upper Shirley. Uh, but when we can keep the vine alive through a, a tough winter, uh, you, we are more than amply rewarded. And we can get Tanat now at Upper Shirley? Absolutely. Any other spots that we can get Tanat that are Michael Shapps related? Oh, at Michael Shapps Wineworks, of course. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Now, if I'm looking you for you guys on social media or something similar, where can I find you? Only on Facebook for me. Michael's on Facebook. We're <laughs> Instagram. On, yeah. We're on Facebook and uh, and and Instagram and, uh, and at Upper Shirley Vineyards. Uh, at Upper Shirley Vineyards, and um, we uh, yeah we also have a website. Yeah. Very cool. Which is UpperShirleyVineyards.com. UpperShirley.com. Uh, UpperShirley.com. You have been listening to Eat It Virginia, or today it's Drink It Virginia. <laughs> with Roby and Scott. Thanks so much, guys, for being with us this afternoon. I know you have super busy, busy schedules squishing grapes. (laughs) Well, thanks for having us. Thank you again. So, Roby. Yes, Scott. It's not not polite to talk about ages, but we're going to talk about ages right now. Okay. The country is celebrating a very important birthday. It's the 40th anniversary of the first Happy Meal. Do you remember your first time? Well, it, I eating feel a Happy Meal. I gotta say this: the Happy Meal is as old as I am. Aww. I know. You both age so gracefully. Oh, that's so good. The chicken nuggets still do look good, don't they? Always. So tell us what uh, McDonald's is doing to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Happy Meal. The same thing I got when I turned 40. A surprise party. They're doing a surprise Happy Meal. So what does that entail? Toys. What kind of toys? Surprise. All right. They're toys from the last 40 years. Ooh, do you remember what the toys were when we were kids? I don't know, but I'm crossing my fingers for a Muppet baby. Was, it, was there an E.T. toy or a Star Wars? That's what I liked when I was a E.T. Kid. phone home toy? That, that's the one. Oh, Star Wars. Who do you like? In Star Wars? Yes. Han Solo. Duh. Why are you even asking that question? So you want a Han Solo toy? Absolutely. So you do know when you can get one? Tell me. If... If that's the surprise, and I'm not going to spoil the surprise, on November the 7th is when they're going to start the 40th anniversary with all of the surprise toys from the last 40 years.
So Mother's Day is coming up. I know, I know. I feel like I'm like super underprepared for it. No reservations at the Jefferson this year? Zero reservations at the Jefferson this year. Do you think my mom's going to be mad? I, I hope not. Well, being that we haven't been at the Jefferson ever for Mother's Day, so she probably is going to be fine. So hypothetically, one forgot to make reservations for Mother's Day. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. One forgot their mom? A friend. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mom. No, you don't forget your mom. You might forget Mother's Day. Life is busy. Right? Too busy for your mom. I celebrate my mom every day. Mm -hmm. But let's just say, hypothetically, one forgot to make a reservation for Mother's Day. So as a bad son, you would like me to... ask the question already. (laughs) Where would you go around town to collect items? Let's say a loaf of bread or a a bouquet of flowers or some chocolates. Where would you collect... None of those are going to make up for forgetting your mother. Well, this isn't forgetting her. (laughs) See, this is all happening this week, hypothetically. Okay. So you don't... So it doesn't seem like you forgot her. So where would you go to collect these items? What are some of the Richmond gems, the local gems where you would get this stuff? So I'm going to pretend... Put together a basket for me. I'm going to pretend we're notes. talking about my mom. And she she would be okay with the bread. She'd probably love a croissant or something from Sub Rosa. Or the LB Winter Whisk would be a great idea. And they also have like fun croissants that you can bake there at Whisk. So you can get them in their raw form and make them hot and delightful. At the old whisk, if you want to. My mom would dig a dark chocolate, probably from Gearhart's. I mean, she'd be into that. Those are delicious. Maybe one that has like a, I don't know, some sort of liquor in it. And then I'm going to throw this out because this is something my mom would really like. She would do, she'd want a piece of fresh fish. I know, right? Right. Where would you I mean, go that, for that? You just, I just got your attention. Yeah. I mean, yellow umbrella. She, she actually would like a tub of one of, of that lobster, too. They have like a tub of lobster meat at Yellow Umbrella. Do you have a favorite place to get flowers? Flowers? Either for someone else or to receive flowers from? So Amy's Organic Garden at south of the um, at the south of the James Market, she does cut flowers. And then right next to her also does cut flowers. And they sometimes have dahlias. Well, they will right now. And they're gorgeous. So this is only at the farmer's market, though. So people have the Saturday before. This Saturday yeah. before is the only time they can get the flowers. I'm, I mean, but I, I'm not going to forget my mom. So I totally know where to get the flowers. Father's Day is in June, mm-hmm. by the way. Yes. He also would like the same thing, but dad wants more chocolate. Lest we not forget Father's Day. And I don't forget either of my parents. You're so sweet. <laughs> I am. Such a good you daughter. You can ask them. <laughs> so I got a few events for you. You want some? I'm always up for a good event. Tell me about it. Do you drink rosé? After Booth told me all about how wonderful rosé is, I have started drinking it in the springtime, yes. And Osaka is having a rosé wine dinner. When, when is that? It's Give me the, the details. Eighth. It's May 8th, May. Osaka River Road, sushi and rosé. I can't think of anything better. You have to reserve seats? I think up? that you should reserve seats, and there is an invite on Facebook under Osaka River Road, or you could just probably reach out to the restaurant. I also heard about a, a New Kent Wine Festival, wine and food festival happening uh, this coming Saturday, May 11th. I'm sensing a theme. Yeah, it's at the Maidstone Village. Have you been there before? It's like a nice little shopping center area in the middle of New Kent. I assume it's in the middle of New Kent. It's like a little stone village looking nice little destination. There's a restaurant called the Trojan Grill there. Really? And that's kind of the centerpiece of the festival. They're going to have some food trucks and I think a dozen wineries. Oh, that so food, more food and wine. I'm down with that in a village. It's food, a, wine in a village. The food trucks are Matchsticks Barbecue. Oh, yum! Dank Eats and Tiffany's. That's a food truck, Tiffany's, and a jewelry store. Oh, yes, also a breakfast at. Um, that, 
oh, if that's not their tagline, it totally should be. I completely just gave that to you. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Also, I got one more for you. So have you been to Tricycle Gardens? I have not. They have a farm party. Where is Tricycle Gardens? It's in Manchester. It's the urban farm that's in Manchester, and they're going to have a down-on-the-farm party there. The event is free, which I think is a bit very, very cool. And what's the day on that? It is May 9th, so on Thursday, May 9th, yep, seven, 4 to 7. Hit up there. They're going to have Ida's food truck, and wait for this name, Holland Balls. Yeah. You don't like meatballs? I mean, yeah. The name kind of off-putting. Really? I mean, yes. I mean, is the word meatball on pudding? Is that even a word? <laughs> Every once in a while, we'll put out a, a plea for questions on Instagram stories, and we have one today. If you know of any food trends that are heading to Richmond. Food trends heading to Richmond. So this is really not a trend, but are you familiar with U-Crops? I've heard of U-Crops, yeah. I've been once or twice. I yeah? I, I think as a kid I went there growing up. Rainbow cookies, yay or nay? Yay. Ugh, nay. Why? Because they're like eating cardboard. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. Any cookies, yay. <laughs> okay, there we go. Do you know that they have a food truck coming? Uh, you know, I saw it, actually. I ran the Monument Avenue 10K uh, earlier this month, and or I guess it was in April. And at the end, you cross the finish line, you make a right, and the food truck was right there, ready to serve up some Rainbow cookies, I guess. Yeah, that's all they serve. So rumor is, and I have it on pretty good authority, that the U-Crops are going to open a, also a restaurant. Wow. Like a U-Crops restaurant. What? Tell us more. Hopefully it's just they give me chicken salad in a cup. Because <laughs> it's delicious. Have you heard where this U-Crops restaurant might be? I have very little info other than it's going to be, a, there is going to be a restaurant. That's kind of like breaking news. It is kind of Why like breaking, breaking news. Why are we breaking news in the last block of this podcast? This should be, we should have led with this. I, I buried food leads all the time. It's terrible. <laughs> That's my trend for you. There Old you grocery stores with new food trucks. <laughs> yeah, that, it's sweeping the nation. <laughs> What's oh. new in the mailbag, Roby? I got all sorts of things, Scott. Many, many, many things. Um, I got who can cater a sushi bachelorette party? Wow. That's a very specific Did ask. Did you have an answer for that? I did. I had three. Okay. Osaka, Umi, or Red Salt is who I would suggest. Who would you have cater your sushi bachelorette? <laughs> <laughs> No, not funny? I don't think I, don't, I, don't think I, I, don't think I know that one. Just because you're not I'm having not a sushi bachelorette? No. Neither sushi nor bachelorette. And then I also have a, I am thinking about staycationing here in Richmond. So I think they're thinking either the Linden Row or Cork. Wait, you are? Or a viewer, a of listener? somebody else. Yeah. Well, mail, I mean, I might staycation too. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm a staycater. So you want to go to Cork? You want you suggest people stay at Cork? Well, at Cork, the Linden, Linden Row. I actually think that if you're going to staycate while being in Short Pump is lovely. I don't know. As staycate. It's, I like that. Staycate? I'm going to staycate. I'm going to staycate here. Okay. Yes. I think your staycationing maybe is better suited to like for you to see more things if you're in an area which is walkable. Okay. So if you're going to staycate, you would suggest spending money on a place to stay and a place to eat or should that money go towards restaurants maybe that you shouldn't or that you don't normally dine. So cool thing about Richmond especially the two bases I just mentioned, is that they give you a discount if you're a local and you want to staycate. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so now we can staycate and eat out. So that is because you have a discount. 
So if you were staycationing at the Linden Row, where would you eat? What kind of discount are we talking here? Enough that it would make sense to go out to dinner. I would visit our friends Chauncey at La Mer. Absolutely. Happy hour at La Mer. Yes, maybe get a snack, a crab cake, because you know how we feel. And then how about the new tobacco company? Would you hop in there? I haven't heard enough about it yet to see if it's that much different than what it was before. What are the, what's, the, uh, what's the vibe down there like now? Very bright and sexy. Okay, so it's a little different than before? Yeah, <laughs> not as dark, but yes, still sexy. And you've dined there since it reopened? I have been there for lunch, and yes, I would definitely t- say go by there. What else is happening in Shaco Slip these days? Citizen. Have you been to Citizen? I have not. Tell me about it. That's breakfast and lunch, and that's where I would suggest if you were staycationing for you to get a breakfast. Okay. Citizen. Not the burger bar, which is also lovely, but that's in Carytown. So if you were staying at Quirk, where would you eat? Tell me about Mini Bar. Isn't that near there? Oh my gosh, that guy's amazing. Well, tell me about it. Oh gosh, so it's downtown. It is. I don't know if you can walk, but he is a newer chef on the scene doing like lobster and shrimp and all that stuff. God, we got to get that guy on. Let's do it. I want to. Where would you eat if you were at Quirk? Max is on Broad, right across the street from Quirk, almost. They have a new menu. They just revamped their menu. That's a great idea. Thank you. And they say Zahn, of course, is right in that neighborhood. Sure, that's for breakfast, chicken biscuit. I go there for dinner. Also good. That, that judge um, at the LB said it was the best meal they had. Did they win best restaurant? They did not. No. Well, that's kind of <laughs> They weird. won something, though, because we had to read it out. Say Thomas Owens. Oh, yeah, yeah the rising chef. <laughs> there it is. Thomas Owens. <laughs> yes, that was my announcement. Yes, it was. It was very exciting. <laughs> I was so nervous up there. Were you? At the LBs, Ruby and I were up, up top on the catwalk. Yes, I'm lucky I didn't fall off. Remember, I almost did. It was very nerve-wracking. I had to like watch you. I had to read the script. I had to drink my drink. You had to do all the things? It was, it was kind of scary. It was kind of scary? It combined my fears of heights and public speaking in one glamorous night. I felt like you did a very good job. Oh, well, thank you. Mm-hmm. A few hearty wood beers will... Uh, Take the edge right off. Lubricates right through the announcing. Exactly. You can list a group of fish like nobody I know. Ah, nice. <laughs> what else has happened in your world? Anything interesting we have to discuss? Any wild nights out? Wild nights. Nope, no real wild nights. I do have a kind of a situation I'd like to talk to you about. Is it appropriate for our podcast or something we should talk about off mic? <laughs> I'm being um, serious. I, it, I'm, I, no, we can t- talk about it. Okay. Um, I like, I would like to know, do you, do you believe in eating seasonally? I eat every season. So are you familiar with ramps? Uh, it's a vegetable or it looks like a vegetable. Is it yeah. actually a vegetable? Let's call it's like it a piece of celery, right? Doesn't it look like <laughs> it's uh, no, yeah, it <laughs> no, but I like that you think that it's it green. It, it is a part of it, yeah. The celery green is also yes. That's so what yes, I'm talking about. You're, you're right. So everything that's green is looks it, like each it, other. Is it green and white? That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> is it green and white? Yeah, very close. Yes, it's celery white. Part the end of it is. Huh, what kind of celery are you eating? Bad rancid celery. Apparently. Anyway, have you had a ramp? No. Well, I feel like in. Instead of ranting, we're going to ramping. You're going to ramp it up? <laughs> yes. No. Did that work? Sure. Good. So I want to talk about whether or not you really like things that smell like onions and feet. I do not. Well, then I feel like we Cheese. Need... Some cheeses smell like feet that I like. Mm-hmm. So maybe you do. Maybe I do. Did you bring any ramps for me to... I have like 80 taste. ramps in my purse, and my purse smells amazing. So what is it about ramps you want to talk about exactly? Well, the season is fleeting. Okay. Like Darn. super. Yeah. Nope, it's not uh, over yet. It's almost over, though. Okay. And then here comes soft shells. But like, I feel like that because it's like a very Virginia thing that we ought to talk about where you can get some ramps. 
I would love to know since the season is fleeting and time is running out. I don't know. If you don't follow Sal Gans on Instagram, she had a pocket full of them yesterday, like literally in there. Stephanie Gans. If you don't follow her, you should. She's one of the best Instagram followers in town. She really is. I can't even get over She's it. She's so bright and happy. Dinamo, pizza, get some ramps. Will do. All right. All right. You listen to Roby and Scott on Eat It Virginia, and we're leaving to get ramps. Eat It Virginia! This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network. This episode of Eat It Virginia was brought to you by your locally owned and operated McDonald's restaurants. National First Responders Day is October 28th. Show your first responder ID for a free sandwich.